Thank you, sir. sir. A couple, couple weeks, weeks ago, ago, guys, we had, we had a little relationship, relationship remodel, remodel um, group sing-along. Sing I don't know if you remember that. that. Um, I gave you the opening line from the great foreigner song. I sang it to you. I want, I want to know, know what, what love is. And you sang back. They sing, they sing better, better in the second service. service. I just want you to know that. that. And I, and I remember, remember I was laughing with some, with some friends outside of the church, church telling this, and I'm like, yeah, it's a, it's a very strange church, church um, led, led by, by a very strange man. man. <laughs> and other and than just having some fun, fun right? right? Like, like, what was the point of making you sing a part or something? Well, it was twofold. The first is, for most of us, in regards to almost everyone of the relationships we're in, we don't know what we're doing. I've been asking you again and again, and I hope not shamingly, I'm just trying to do it convincingly, right? Who, who the, the heck, heck taught, taught me? me? Who, who the, the heck, heck taught, taught you how to, how to be, a, be friend? a friend? What, what class did you, did you ever take on parenting teenagers before you had them, right? Why, Why in the world would you think you know how to be a wife or a, or a husband? And I, and I think, think as, as we've been reflecting, reflecting on it, right, you know, you know um, the, the answer is, what the answer is for the most part. And I, and I would, would argue the most important, important uh, or excuse me, the, the more important, the more vital the relationships, the more this is true. true. For, the For the most part, part all of our relationships are based off of some kind of model. For most, For most of us, it was the way our parents related to one another. It was the way our mom and dad's marriage worked, for example. The roles that they played in their homes. The way they handled everything from casseroles to conflicts. Right? That's how we perceive is normal. That's the right way to go. It extends into every other relationship we have. We have the way we were raised. That either becomes the model for how we raise our children. Or if, or if that, that didn't, didn't go well, well right, right, when, when we, we were getting raised, raised that, that becomes, becomes the way we will definitely not raise our children. Never Nevertheless, it's a model. The scriptures, scriptures though, the scriptures, scriptures are replete, replete verse after verse, book after book. After book. Many, Many of them, the, the books chronicling and quoting Jesus himself, himself. they speak of a different way of modeling relationships. The model, the model that they, they point, point to again, again and again is what I just shared during our communion time together. together. The model is Jesus and his, and his relationships, relationships, and specifically how he relates to us. The Apostle, the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote most of the New Testament, Testament he, wrote he wrote most about the model. He told, he told the church in the city of Philippi, he said, in your relationships with one another, have, have the same mindset as Jesus, as Christ Jesus. And he would go on, on to describe, describe that, mo that, that mindset. mindset. And so, and so the model for your relationships is to have the mindset of Jesus. To the, to the church in Ephesus, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us, and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What is he saying? Follow God's example. Follow the model. Imitate God. And how do you do that? You love one another. And not just in a, it's, it's almost Valentine's Day, day emotional way. way. You, know, you know, I will if you will, 50-50 kind of thing. Jesus, as we just discussed on the night, he's betrayed by, by Judas. When, when Judas had chosen to become an enemy of God, Jesus, who knew what he had done, walks in the room at the Last Supper, sees him at the table, and he chooses to kneel down and wash his feet. It was, it was at, at that meal, meal after, after that, that moment, that Jesus gives this new singular command. A new command I give you, love one another. And then, and then the model, as I have loved you, you must love one another. So a couple weeks ago, we sang the foreigner song. I want to know what love is, and I want you to show me. 
he, he did. did. That's, That's it. it. If you, you want to see, see it, look, look at him. him. He showed, he showed us, us what love is. is. And, as and as we, we looked at it, at its, at its core, core over the last few weeks, we've been looking at just two principles. The first is love as it's defined by the Bible, which is a commitment to act for the well-being of another person. And then, and then the flip, flip side of the coin of love is, is an overarching concept that I've, I've argued has to lie at the foundation of every relationship that wants to stamp itself as a Christian relationship. relationship. That, that concept is submission. Not, not as defined by our culture, but by, by Jesus. We not, we not only have a commitment to act for the well-being of another person, the flip side of the coin is that we prioritize the well-being of another person over and above ourselves. That, that means, means in, in everything, everything they, they go first, we come second, last. last. Their, their hopes, hopes, their, their dreams, dreams, their wishes, their plans, their desires, their heck, their, their importance. importance. We, we place it before our own love and submission. Love and submission. Love and submission. This, this is our story. This, this is the gospel. This is what Jesus did for us. This is what he modeled, and therefore we are to do that with one another. And so we have the model. But there, but there are, are certain, certain specifics, specifics regarding, regarding the question of what love is. How does, how does this practically work its way out in relationships? It, it still lingers, right? right? Like, like, I understand it, I see the model, but like, is there instructions? It wasn't, it wasn't just Farner that, that so famously asked the question. question. And, so and so to give you a second, second reference, to push the thought of this even deeper into your brain, I'm going to give you yet another cultural touchstone. An artistic, An artistic representation of love at the highest class. The Mozart of models, if, if you will. An earworm of musical majesty. And a visual clip you won't be able to unsee. Does anybody remember these guys? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah. They actually, actually made, made a movie off of them, which I haven't seen, but I heard it was horrible. But, but it, it has become almost a meme, meme right? right? Like, like I don't know if you've gotten, gotten it in text for threads, right? Like, that, I've, I've seen that come through in, in text from folks just joking about, you know, it's, it's taken on all these different meanings. meanings. Now, here's, here's the key. key. Does anybody know what song was playing behind that clip? Anybody know the name of the song? What is love? What is love? Same, Same question. question. This, this time, time not asked by Farner, but this, this one hit wonder, wonder Hathaway. Hathaway. Any, Any Hathaway, Hathaway fans out there? What, what is love, love right? Farner wanted, wanted to know what love is, and they, and they wanted you to show them Jesus did that. Did that. Hathaway, Hathaway had a different want, want right? right? He, he asked the same question, right? right? What is love? But then does anybody remember what his second line was he didn't want you to do? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No, no more. more. Which, Which is, is kind of interesting, right? right? I mean, I mean, if you think about it, about it like, like I, I, you know, I don't know if anybody goes out clubbing, but, uh, <laughs> you know, you're at the laundromat there in Morristown one night. Not, Not that, that I would know anything, anything about this. this. You know? You know? And and everyone, what is love? Don't, don't hurt me. What a strange coupling. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. But, but here's the truth, truth right? We, we look at it in week one. one. The, the power, power of relationships. relationships. Nothing has more power in our lives, for, for good or for evil, to bless or curse than our relationships. God, God created them for our good, good to, to be our greatest earthly blessing. 
But, but these, these things that God creates for good often get counterfeited and used for evil. And what it does, when it does, baby, it hurts. It hurts. And not, not just our feelings. feelings. Some of you could give a, a long soliloquy about what it's done to your life. life. Even, Even more interesting, actually. You know, I, I don't, I'm a strange person. I come up with these things. Then I'm like, well, I wonder what else the song says. Because I didn't, I didn't know, know, I don't know, know does anybody know any other words after that? that? So, so I said, well, I wonder what else the song says. Well, here's what he, he goes on. I feel like the need to kind of sing it a little bit. Well, just, well, just so, so you, you, you might harken back, back, right? <laughs> now, now, I don't know why you're, you're not fair. Uh-oh. Relational found issue from week two. Anybody, Anybody remember? This is a transactional relationship. It is a flawed relationship at its foundation. This has to be fair. Well, I don't know why you're not fair. This is my pop-pop's wedding advice to me. Johnny, it's got to be 50-50 down the line, right? Hopefully, if you're tracking, you'll start to pick this up in relationships and not just songs. But he goes on in his, uh, his masterpiece. I give you my love, but you don't care. So, what is right and what is wrong? Give me a sign. And so, friends, today, that's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you the signs. I'm going to answer the question, what is love? We have the model, but I want to show you the signs. I want to show you what's right and what's wrong. And... and I, these are not my suggestions. You're not here to, to, to hear from me. I'm actually still working on these things, and I, I have a lot of work to do. You can ask my wife after the service. But the scriptures, right, are going to show you what love is. And it's going to be really awesome and really challenging. And, and, and if you thought submission was, was difficult, like wrapping your mind around submission, right, this is about to get even more real. What is love? Right now, you should go, be going, Pastor, don't hurt me, don't hurt me no more. When Jesus said, we're to love one another, he gives us the model. The model is how he loves us. But specifically, when he says that we should love one another, what does he mean by that word? What does that mean, love? You should do this, right? It's something. You should do this to one another. What did he mean? For example, I love the Dallas Cowboys. I love the New York Mets. I love my dog. And I love my wife. I have to tell you, three out of four of those are highly, highly dysfunctional relationships. You can choose which one is which. I'll leave it up to you to figure out. I have left it no to be known in my will, though, that I would like the Dallas Cowboys to be pallbearers at my funeral so they can let me down one last time. <laughs> what did he mean, right? I mean, I love pizza and tacos and my children. What does Jesus mean when he says love? What, what of those things is he talking about? And is it different based on the relationships? How does this work? What is love? Let me give you a little background, some context for our discussion. When Jesus said the greatest commandment, when he answered the question, What's the greatest commandment? He said it was to love God and to love our neighbors. He was actually reaching back to something in the history of Israel, back to the Old Testament, and he was pulling two commands forward, commands found in the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and he used a word for love there. In the Hebrew, the word for love was ahava. It was the Hebrew word for, for, for love. And, and it had a very broad meaning. 
It, it, it described not only how we were to love God, but how we were to love one another. And that love for one another was to be rooted in God. It was, in a sense, Ahava had been modeled, and you were to, to follow the model for Ahava. Moses told the nation of Israel, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord ahavad you. God does not love Israel. He does not choose them as his people, his message bearers, because of something that they've done. He loves them, right? Because that's who God is. It's what emanates from his character. He loves because God is love, exists in love, and overflows in love. This is who he is and what he does. And the ahava of God is not simply his affection. God does have feelings for you. He rejoices over, over you with singing. He is jealous for you, so God does have feelings for you. But his ahava is not merely a sentiment. His ahava for you is an action. It is something that he chooses to do. He chose, Moses said, to ahava Israel like he chooses to ahava you and I. Israel he chooses for no reason, they were not more attractive than any other people. They weren't a better-looking people, a more stout and strong people. They weren't even a holy people. They did not love God first, and God was returning the Ahava to them for, because they loved first. God just chose them. And again, Moses writes, because he ahavad your ancestors and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength. I want you to track with me, okay, because this is all going to come down to what's going to go on at your kitchen table tonight. We're going to go from ahavad in the Old Testament to your kitchen table. For God, love was not limited to the emotion. It was a choice that expressed itself in action. For God, love does, and we were to do the same. Israel was, and we, by extension, in this case, we are to ahava the way Israel was commanded to ahava. Who was Israel commanded to ahava over and over and over again in the Old Testament? They're, they're the foreigners, uh, refugees, widows, orphans, the poor among us. And why? Because they could offer nothing back. Don't you see? That's what ahava does. They couldn't give anything back. You just choose to love them. And you love them with deeds, not just words. You love the ahava, the undeserving in your midst. All right, now back to Jesus, right? He had reached back for that word. Even though he's reaching back to the Old Testament, he actually doesn't answer with the word ahava. Jesus spoke and taught in a different language. He spoke and taught in Aramaic. That was a language that was derived kind of like a cousin language of Hebrew. So Jesus would have said that the greatest commandment, he would have answered uh, uh, with the word love in Aramaic, which is the word rachmah. It's the Aramaic word for love. He would say that we are to rachmah our neighbors and foreigners and refugees and widows and orphans and the poor among us. In fact, one of his most famous parables, you guys know this, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You don't, this could be your first time ever in a church and you've heard about the Good Samaritan. And that is a parable, it is a teaching about rachmah, who you're supposed to love. Again, it's a broad word for love, right? 
But it's not limited to an emotion or a feeling. It is a love expressed. It is a chosen love that expresses itself with others' first submissive, humble giving. Which is why, okay, this is what's kind of fascinating. Which is why, now we go to, to the New Testament, right? Jesus answered with Rachmah. But not long after his death, when, when the gospel writers are translating his teachings into the language of their day, in which they would write, they were translating them into Greek. And there were actually lots of words for them to choose for, because the Greek language recognizes something that many other languages don't, that what I feel about tacos and my wife are not the same. There was, some of you know this, the word philea, right? If you understand that the word philea is the root from which we, we get our, uh, the name for the city of Philadelphia, where, where that's derived from, you would understand that philea is what kind of love? Philea is brotherly love, which is kind of a joke because I've worn a Cowboys jersey to an Eagles game, <laughs> and I believe I saw a few batteries whiz by my head. Supposedly, it is the city of brotherly love, right? That is what they could have chosen for the love of God, right? What Jesus was trying to express, how we were to love one another in that way, right? The kind of way where you become close as brothers and sisters. Why? Because you have shared values or interests or activities, right? When you talk about um, the kind of love that you have with your best friend, right? When you say, you know, I love you, you're really saying that you, you philea them. Then there was a, another word, storge. This is the love of family, the way parents love their children, the way siblings relate one to another. There was a, another word for love in the Greek, eros. Actually, if you understand the word from, if you understand this, this is the word from which we get our word, English word, erotic. You understand what kind of love that is, right? I mean, some of you right now are going, please, I get it, no more. This is, eros is kind of a need-based, pleasure-seeking kind of love. If you were here a few weeks ago, think of Ginger Grant and my relationship. But the translators of the gospel didn't choose any of those when they talked about what Jesus was saying. They didn't choose any of the common Greek words for love. Instead, they chose a very seldom used and rare word, agape. And why? Because there were up to seven other Greek words for love available. Why would they pick a word that was so seldom used? The answer was the model. The way Jesus lived and loved because of the model he left for relationships, this was the only word that would fit. It was the word for the model. Oh, that's agape. See, the other words fell way too short. They were far too limiting. Think, think about this, okay? Brotherly love, right? Love for those that are like us. Familial love, love for our parents or our children. Eros, romantic, emotional, sweaty palms when I see you love. They're all really natural, right? I mean, what qualifications? Do you know what the qualifications are to experience any kind, uh, any of those three kinds of love? A pulse. Like, anybody could feel that. Anybody could do that, right? I mean, heck, you can have Eros and not even know the girl. Think of me and Farrah Fawcett. There's nothing unusual or otherworldly about those kind of loves. They're natural, common, pedestrian, everyday kind of loves. Most of us have experienced them. And this is the kind of love that we think we're to, to replicate, that, that we think that we're getting into. You know, isn't marriage just kind of a combination of those three things? 
These are all loves that involve feelings, and for the most part, they're loves in which there's an exchange of benefits or pleasures or interests. Again, the reason the world so rare, or the, the word was so rarely used in Greek was that it was rarely seen in the world. Because agape, agape is a different kind of thing. Agape is the love of God. It, it, it is that chosen love, not necessarily felt. It is chosen. It's, it's not accidental or coincidental. It's not predicated or preceded by. In fact, it exists regardless of emotional affinity or attractive traits as its object. It is the selfless, submissive, unconditional, undeserved, unmerited, most times unrequited love of God. It's the love which God's, God enjoys in the Godhead, the Father and Son and Holy Spirit experience every moment of every day for all of time. And it is the love that you have been invited into. It pours out of the Godhead, and you've been invited to the dance. For God so agape the world that he, he sent his only Son. See, here's the crazy thing about this. When Jesus gives this new singular command that sits at the foundation of every Christian relationship, this is the kind, agape is the kind of love that we're supposed to have towards one another. Jesus, our model, shows us that agape, beyond merely unconditional and selfless, it is a verb and not a noun. Agape is not something we feel, it's not something we fall in and out of, right? It doesn't go away. You can't grow apart in agape. Agape is a choice of the will, not an emotion of the heart. It is an action towards another, not just to wish them be their best, but to actually seek their best above yourself. We're to agape people with no expectation of anything in return. How do I know that we're to, how you're supposed, God wants me to love people with no expectation for anything in return? How do you know that, John? Simple. Jesus said exactly that. But to you who are listening, he said, I say, agape, your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If you agape those who agape you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners agape those who agape them. Don't you see what he's saying? Even sinners can have a transactional 50-50 kind of relationship. Those are common. Those wouldn't stand out. Those wouldn't make people go, wow, look at them. This is a love that emulates from the character of God, and we're supposed to emulate it out to the world. How? Through the way we relate to one another and them. Now, friends, don't you see how we have so screwed this up? You know, there's so many of us bemoan, oh, the world is in such terrible shape. But look what, we've, look what we've reflected to them. They don't know who Jesus is because we haven't shown them who he is by the way we love them and one another. It's the model of Jesus, right? Serving others, moving constantly towards the least, least of those in the community, hanging out, spending time with outcasts and marginalized people. What does Jesus do for his enemies? Those that conspired against him, didn't think like him, act like him, vote like him, love like him. They lied about him. They denigrated him. They betrayed him. They arrested him. They beat him. And do you know what Jesus did to them? He agape them. How? Well, he would actually say that there, uh, and, and soon demonstrate, 
that there is no greater agape than a man lay down his life for another. And this is what Jesus did, not, not just for his friends, but for his enemies. This is what's supposed to be going on. Paul explained it this way. He said, but God, God demonstrates his own agape for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, while we were like Judas in the room on, on, on the night before Jesus was crucified, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus' disciple John. John did not understand this. Most of the disciples did not get this concept we were talking about for a long time. John didn't get it at first. Years later, though, he would put it all together and write a letter about it, what Jesus had done and what it all meant. He, he was beginning to understand what was going on. Here's what John said as he looked back at it. He said, this is how God showed his agape among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Don't you see? You don't feel agape. You do agape. God showed his love among us, which leads to John's conclusions. Dear friends, since God so agaped us, we also ought to agape one another. And again, John is a very old man when he's writing this epistle, very old. But he's putting together for himself and passing on to us before he dies what he discovered, which, friends, I, I don't think this is an overstatement. This is no less than the truth behind the center of the universe and the meaning of existence and life itself. For John, it was simply this. At the center of the universe is a being that is agape love, that exists in it, and he is overflowing with it for his world. It is love, agape, that is the odds behind the universal curtain, if you will. And thus, the purpose of human existence is to simply do two things, to receive the love, to accept the invitation to dance, and then to give it back out into the world, which when you think about it, it brings so much context and clarity to Jesus' prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in mendum as it is in heaven, in my marriage as it is in heaven, between me and my kids as it is in heaven, between me and my in-laws as it is in heaven. Agape is not something you feel, remember. Agape is something you make. So, new somewhat awkward question. Who the heck taught you how to make love? Awkward silence. Get your mind out of the gutters, people. That's Eros that you're thinking about. Seriously. Who taught you? Most of what we do in our relationships has to do with making a deal, not with making love. We need to learn how to make love. And today, with the time I have left, your pastor is going to show you. Where do you pick your kids up and they ask what you learned in church today? The city of Corinth. In the first century, it's a, it's a city a lot like New York City. In some sense, if, if we were alive then, we would, men in Manchester, right, would be like a suburb of Corinth, in a sense. Many of us would take the train to work in the city of Corinth every morning. It was primarily a place of commerce, not really anybody's hometown, per se. You, you didn't go to Corinth to settle down with your family. You went to Corinth to make it big. If you could make it in Corinth, you could make it anywhere. 
It was a small town, not unlike Manhattan. It was only about four miles, geographically speaking, and it, it was on an isthmus between two bodies of water, so trade was the common thing. Everything came, went back forth through, through, through Corinth. That's why you would go there. It was kind of the center for trade, right? In fact, the city itself had just been built from scratch a few decades before this letter that Paul writes to the people, actually to the church, in that city. That city attracted people just like New York City does, just like Men and Manchester does, right? These were, for the most part, that, that group there were highly educated, highly resourceful, uber-talented, over-ambitious, intense kind of people that lived in Corinth. And, and so in the church of Corinth, right, the Christian population there, not unlike the Christian population here or the church in Mendham, it contained these kind of people, winners, smart people, hardworking people. And what Paul realized about these kind of people were because of their talents and, and their driven kind of natures and all of their successes, it was wrecking their relationships. And it was destroying, it was ruining the model. The church that existed in the city of Corinth was not showing the city who Jesus was by the way they loved one another. In fact, it was quite the opposite was happening in Corinth. The church was no different. In fact, it was maybe more intense than the city. The arguments were greater. I'd encourage you, go home and read the letter he wrote to the church. If he wrote a couple of them. Read the first one. If you read it, what you'll see is the first bunch of chapters there, Paul is dealing with all of these relational sin patterns that exist in their relationships with one another. All of the bad models, the transactional stuff that they're following. And then he gets to, I know you know what he gets to. If you've, been around, if you've ever gone to a wedding, you know what he gets to. He gets to the famous 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We call it the love chapter. It's the chapter we read at weddings. And whenever, whenever anybody reads it at weddings, right, everybody goes, oh, isn't that beautiful? The Corinthians didn't quite see it that way. The Corinthians were like, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me, because that doesn't sound fun. They were taken aback. They didn't go, oh, they went, oh. Paul begins the chapter by recognizing who he's speaking to. He talks to him. He goes, look, I know who you are. I know you're smart and educated and successful people. I've seen all that you've achieved. And so he says to them, if I, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, if I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, if, if I give all I possess to the poor and my body over to hardship that I may boast, he goes, look, I know who you are. I know what you've done. I know what you've accomplished. It looks really good on the outside. But if I don't have love, it amounts to absolutely nothing. And then he takes all of the Greek words that he had used in chapters 4 through 7 to describe their relational patterns that were all screwed up, that were ruining the model, and he begins to remodel their relationships with one another in a church. He's telling them, look, you're, you're gifted and you're talented, but your character stinks. And then he shows them how to make love. He doesn't just pull these things out of the air. It's not like he's sitting around going, well... Oh, you know, love is... He's looking at them and going, no, you're, you, you suck at this. Let me show you. I'm going to tell you what this is, right? I, I want you to remodel your relationships based on this. You know it. 
Agape, he says, is patient. It's kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. Think about this in New York City. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It doesn't keep any record of wrongs. It doesn't delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It, it always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails. Friends, this is the instruction manual. You were, Jesus gives us the model. Jesus, you know, it, Jesus is kind of like the Ikea description set for love, right? It's just a picture, and you're like, I wish there were some words on this. Paul goes, let me put some words on the model for you. Here they are. Paul says, do the, that, that if you don't love your talent, your successes, your accomplishment, all that you're giving your lives away to becomes pointless, now, sometimes words, I, we've all heard that before a million times in our lives, I, I would think, right? I mean, if it's your first time in church, you've probably gone to a wedding and heard it read. But, but I want to pull in, because sometimes these words become ubiquitous. It's like, I've heard it a million times. I want to I pull in, and I do this a lot when, when I feel like we've heard it a lot. I want to pull in a different translation, same writing, and again, written to a church like or about, or written to a church like ours, about their relationships with one another and the world around them. This was not written to a married couple. It was not written to a married couple. It was not written to a married couple. In fact, what I would tell you is a lot of the stuff that is written to married couples in the Bible is written to couples who lived in arranged marriages. Whole another thing to think through, right? Now, I want you, as you hear this new translation, I want you to think about how you would apply this in your relationships. Because we're supposed to agape our enemies. We're supposed to agape the world. Let's just start with our spouse, our kid. Love, according to the message translation, never gives up. Love cares more for others than for itself. This should all start to sound familiar, right? Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut. It doesn't have a swelled head. It doesn't force itself on others. It isn't always me first. Doesn't fly off the handle. Doesn't keep score of the sins of others. Doesn't revel when others grovel. Takes pleasures in the flowering of truth. Love puts up with anything. It trusts God always. And it always looks for the best. It never looks back. But it keeps going to the end. How are you at that? See, here's the interesting thing about, about the description of love, right? This is how you make love. It is not a prescription for a relationship. It's not. Nor is it focused on the behaviors of somebody else. Agape is always about me. You see that? This is not about somebody else. This is about me. This is not a checklist for Joan. I have put it up on her dresser every day. But it turns out it is not a checklist for Joan or my kids or my neighbor or my boss. I think you could argue this might be the one time in the scripture where it's all about me. Agape is a choice to love like Jesus loved, to submit to him and to others, to put them and their well-being ahead of myself. My hopes and wants and dreams and plans and pleasures, right? This is how you do it. If you want to know how you do it, Paul says, I'm going to put some words on the model. This is how Jesus did it for you. 
Now, many of you know I do lots of relationship counseling, and I don't approach it from any other perspective than this one. If you come to see me to help you with a relationship, we're going to work on two pieces of Scripture. One is in Ephesians, and there's this one here in 1 Corinthians. This is it. A few weeks ago, I was working with a couple, and uh, they were struggling through some stuff, and we worked through it over a bunch of weeks. And uh, when we got done, I, I had a, a final meeting, and the wife sat across from me, and she goes, I'm going to—and I, please don't see this as self-aggrandizing— it's, I don't mean it that way, but I think it's funny. She goes, I'm going to take out a sign on Route 80 that says, John Eisman, miracle worker. And I said, no, you're not, because John Eisman doesn't even do this well himself. All John Eisman did was help you take what you know and begin to do it. To actually take what you know about love, the scripture you memorize about love, and begin to do these things. I, I, I didn't, this isn't my idea. I'm an idiot. Now, we could go through each of these things. Maybe we will. I don't know. But this really is, I'm telling you, it's a checklist. You should put it up somewhere. It is a step-by-step -step guide to making love. We need to work on all of them in our relationships. But let's be real. When I do counseling with people, I say, look, let's just start with one. Because these are hard. Like, this is not going to be easy. Right? Maybe you're talented. We'll go with two this week. Love done the right way, it does hurt. It's unnatural. Sometimes it feels like a crucifixion. It's, it's like you're dying inside. You're dying to yourself, which is exactly what is happening. I had a friend, I was helping him in his relationship, and uh, he, he was putting these things into practice. We were going through them. Each week, we'd go through a couple different ones. I want you to love your wife this way. I want you to love, love your wife that way. After a couple of weeks, I, I called him. Um, I, I remember exactly where I was because he gave me such a great line. I was at my daughter's field hockey game, um, and I was walking. It was halftime, so I called him up, and I said, hey, man, how's it going working through those principles? And he goes, oh, let me put it this way. I'm no Jesus Christ. I said, yeah, man, this is hard stuff, right? But, but you have the Spirit of God in you. If you've come to believe that Jesus is who he is, if you've trusted him with your life, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And these are, these are seeds that have been planted in you. You just got to bring them into fruition. Love is patient, right? The word there really translates as long-suffering. Love puts up with a lot, Love doesn't demand instant gratification. Boy, in our culture, don't we? I mean, everything's got to be today. Quick change. Love suffers long. Love, love treats the sins of others the way Jesus treats mine. He is long-suffering and patient with me. He doesn't give up or give in. Jonathan Edwards was a famous 18th century pastor and theologian. Here's what he said about this, this topic. He goes, love doesn't take revenge or retaliate. Love responds with meekness and humility, just as Jesus did. Ultimately, our long-suffering ought to mirror God's long-suffering towards us because Christians understand how many sins God has patiently suffered from us. He said, it will seem to them but a small thing to bear with the injuries that have been offered to them by their fellow man. Love is kind. It means it's not selfish. It's not demanding its own way. It's not grabbing all it can in the relationship. It does good towards others, even when no good can come in return. One of the questions that comes up all the time when I counsel folks is they'll tell me, you know, how they responded to something that happened, you know, and then she said this. So I told her, and, my, you know, I always go, well, let me ask you a question. Would you describe your response as kind? Was that kind? 
Guys, this is your homework assignment. This is a homework assignment for a lifetime. Rethinking, relearning each of these characteristics, seeing them in new ways, taking them like a diamond, understanding it from one thing, spinning it, seeing a new facet of it, and how it applies, right? How you apply it in different circumstances with different people in different contexts. Love does not envy. It doesn't get jealous over the life of another, the success of another, the house of another, the gifts of another. Love doesn't boast. It's not proud. Love never says to its spouse, you're lucky I married you. Do you know where you'd be if it wasn't for me? Love does not remind others of what they do or how they've provided for them. Love doesn't need to. Love is humble. It doesn't mean you think less of yourself, right? It means you just think of yourself a lot less. You think of others a lot more. How about doing that in your relationships for one week? How about that? Imagine that you say to yourself, Honey, I want you to go home and, 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 and sit down and go, honey, here's what I'm going to do. Every time I think of myself this week, I'm going to stop and think about you. And I'm not just going to think about you, then I'm going, to put, I'm going to do something. Imagine that. Love doesn't dishonor others. It never tells the kids, well, this is because your father is such a... Well, maybe if your mother wouldn't. Love honors. Love honors, and these are action words. It means you do something like... Hey, kids, I was thinking about your mom today. You are so blessed to have her as your mom. Oh, my gosh. Let me tell you why. Oh, man, your dad, I hope, girls, I hope you find a man just like him. Love is not easily angered. Do you know how hard that one is? This week, the Eisman's got a social media call out because our dog got loose, and someone in a social media page said, well, unfortunately, he's a repeat offender. And I just like, I went to her Facebook page and I studied it. (laughs) And I found all of her weaknesses, the brokenness in her friend. And I I was just going to let her have it. I remember I was sitting there going, what is wrong with me? Why, why, why? What is wrong with me? Love is not easily angered. That's not, that's hard, especially for guys. That's not love. Love keeps no record of wrongs. How about that one? There's no mental list of all the times it's happened before. There's no filter that it runs through because of all the past things you've done. You never say, well, you always do that. He always forgets. She always screws up. Love means there's just this constant clean slate. How about this one? Love does not delight in evil. It rejoices with the truth. This means that when someone who's hurt me gets hurt, when the guy who gets the promotion in my place loses his job, I don't celebrate. Agape doesn't hope that karma plays itself out. We don't do that. I don't hope someone's sins catch up with them. I don't want mine to catch up with me. I don't want anybody to get theirs. Love rejoices with truth, which means we stop lying to each other. There's no more secrets. We stop our posing, putting on airs with one another. Why? Wouldn't love mean the way, the way we were created, right? To be fully known but completely loved. That's how God loves us. That's the naked and unashamed principle before the fall. We, we live lives of truth before one another, and we celebrate it. It always protects and trusts and hopes That means love believes the best about others. It means in the absence of undeniable truth in the other direction, trust, I trust in the actions and the hearts and the motives of others. Love demands, right, to review nobody's text messages because I trust you. And love is also the first person to say, here, I want you to have access to everything I have because it makes you feel more comfortable. I love you so much, I want to be an open book before you. 
never makes assumptions about why this happened or why they did that, and never reads the minds of others and presumes bad intentions. I could go on, I won't, but you should. This is the guide for how to make agape. This is how you do love. You make it, you don't feel it. Though, though I can tell you, your feelings will follow. Your feelings will follow. Lead your feelings in love, don't follow your feelings. So here's your homework for tonight. The band's gonna come up for this week. Feel free to take out a phone and take a picture of it. We have slowly gotten to this point. Number one, give this, just given this description of love, I would love for you to get along with somebody, right? Somebody. Let's start with healthy relationships first before we move into to tough ones. First one, given this description of love, because this is an I thing, right? This is me. This is not about you. Given this description of love, I have come up short. I've been looking at our relationship. And I have to tell you, I've, I've come up short in this, this couple of spots right here. I want to do better. I want you to watch me this week. And you have permission to gently remind me when, when I screw it up. And when you do, I'll go back to last week and not let my flesh go up and, well, I know fights and quarrels start among you, right? Number two. Given this description of love, print out 1 Corinthians 13, hand it to whoever you're talking to. What are two things? You might want to do one, but if you're an overachiever, you can go with two. You might want to do one. Given this description of love, what are two things I can work on this week that would make you feel loved? And finally, number three. What are two things that I could, this is where you, knew you, you need to put that full armor on, what are two things this week I could stop doing that violate this list that would make you feel loved? Why are you going to do this, Maggie? We're just going to go at that last verse here. Why are you going to do this, friends? Are you going to do it because anybody deserves it? No, you are going to do it because of the importance of relationships, what they were meant to model. This is our story. Why would I do this? Why would I put up with this? There's one reason. You would do it. Do you have, have it, Maggie? You would do it because you revere Jesus. He did it for you. You do it for others. Let's stand and close the song.